This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted that you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are on the planet. My guest today is Dr. Joe Fitzsimons. He's the CEO of Horizon Quantum Computing. Joe left a tenured faculty position at Singapore University of Technology and Design to found Horizon Quantum Computing in 2018. Drawing on his over 15 years of experience in quantum computing and computational complexity theory, his goal is to make quantum computing a general purpose computing technology capable of addressing some of the world's most challenging computational problems. Joe received a BSc in theoretical physics from University College Dublin and a DPhil from Oxford, where he went on to become a fellow of Merton College. Dr. Fitzsimons also has been named as a National Research Foundation Fellow and to the MIT Technology Review's list of innovators under 35 Asia. His company, Horizon, is pioneering an approach to quantum computing that allows users to write programs in classical languages that can then be compiled and run on conventional or quantum computers without any knowledge in quantum computing. By removing the need for prior quantum computing experience, Horizon's tools will democratize the development of quantum-enhanced applications, making the power of quantum computing accessible to every software developer. So welcome, Joe. I'm delighted to have you joining me for this session. Thanks very much, and thanks for the kind introduction. So, Joe, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. My objective is really twofold, certainly to give our audience more detail around what you did before you founded Horizon Quantum Computing, but also to orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you would, please share with our listeners a bit about your background and path so far, like where you grew up, what you studied at university, maybe more detail, and then any insight into organizations where you worked or did research prior to founding Horizon? Sure. So um, I grew up in Ireland, as people might guess from my accent. When I was younger, when I was a you know a teenager, um, I was really interested in computers and technology. And when I was making my choices about what university courses to apply for, what I was going to study, it was very important to me to keep up a couple of different subjects that I cared about, to keep up uh, maths, to keep up physics and also to keep up computer science. Um, and so when I was looking at the possibilities, you know, what possible courses were out there, um, I ended up settling on theoretical physics. Um, and that may seem odd if you're interested in computers. Um, but actually, the way the course was structured, it allowed you to do uh, kind of the first year of computer science as well. Um, so there was, you know, a good way of keeping up, um, keeping up my interests. And, and basically, I had always wanted to work on really kind of frontier technology. Um, I wanted to be part of some kind of technological revolution, you know, just like the early days of computing or, you know, the first days of flight or something like that. Yeah. Um, so when I was studying in university, I, you know, getting towards the end of my studies, I really wanted to make sure that I continued down that path. You know, at that point, I was kind of thinking, you know, what do I need to be able to work on something really cool? Uh, yeah. and I ended up thinking that, you know, actually no one's going to let me work on anything cool if I don't get a PhD. 
And with retrospect, that's not true. Yeah. Um, but it is what I thought at the time yeah. um, and what sucked me into, into doing a PhD. So I, uh, so I started a PhD originally in Ireland and then moved to Oxford um, a little under a year later. Um, and I, I was focusing on quantum computing. And the reason I picked quantum computing was because I thought it was going to give me this best chance to kind of relive the excitement of the early days of computing. You know, initially there was a bit of that high and then quantum computing went through a, a period of a certain amount of stagnation uh, for a reasonable number of years where the theory far outpaced experiment. But that started to change. You know, what's led me to lead to leave academia, you know, I had gone up, I'd done my PhD after my PhD. Um, I was a, a fellow of Merton College there, a junior research fellow, uh, which kind of gave me independence to pursue my own research agenda. Um, and then I moved to Singapore in 2010. As it turned out, you know, I was coming to the end of my fellowship in Merton and Arthur Eckert uh, was a, a fellow there, but he was also director of the Center for Quantum Technologies in Singapore. So he had suggested that I, um, that I consider Singapore as an option. Uh, so fortunately I did, uh, moved out here, continued my research career in Singapore, uh, built up a group, you know, took up a tenure track and ultimately tenured position at uh, Singapore University of Technology and Design. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough in terms of how things went with grants and so on, um, that my career went quite well, was able to build up a decent uh, research group. Um, but for me, the, the primary goal has always been to contribute to the development of technology and to technology that people use that has an effect yeah. on the world. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess one of the things that has been happening in the field of quantum computing is that it started to move more out of academia and towards industry, you know, as the hardware comes a little bit closer to being realized. And as a result, it seemed to me that really the center of gravity was moving more towards industry and that I would have more impact by moving out of an academic role and pursuing my same agenda of trying to have an impact uh, on a technology that would affect people, but doing it in a different form, uh, moving it more close to application. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's what I did in 2018. Um, I founded Horizon, uh, myself and a number of my group members uh, left our academic positions, uh, and we started in, in early 2019 at Horizon. So thank you for sharing your background. Fascinating. Um, and I think very insightful, for again, for listeners about how you might navigate into quantum. I, I, you know, the passion for leading edge technology and the um, desire to do something with the technology that impacts people. Bravo. So thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask just a little more detail about, you know, what led you to start the company. So obviously, as you had mentioned, you know, much of this was going on in research labs and it's now moved more toward uh, private sector and uh, even you know, government agencies are helping underwrite and fund advancement in quantum. But was there like a singular moment maybe where you and the team or members of your group, um, you know, had sort of a light bulb moment, like let's make the move now, this is the time, the hardware is mature enough or we have the skills to make a difference? Sure. So for us, well, for me, that has been a little bit different maybe than it was for others. It wasn't a light bulb moment. Rather, yeah. it had been something that I was planning for a long time and I was trying to figure out the right timing on it. When would the technology be close enough, but not too close? 
you know, you want it close enough that you're not destined to failure, that you don't end up, you know, focusing on stuff that is never realizable because the technology, the hardware isn't there. But at the same time, you don't want to be so close that the technology's already arrived because then there'll be, you know, there'll be a lot of people moving into the sector. You lose a lot of lead time. Uh, so that didn't seem optimal. So uh, we were trying to gauge it. And there were a number of things that happened around that time. Um, but certainly you could see that quantum computing was starting to mature. The, you know, IBM already had their processors on the cloud. Um, right. Rigetti uh, announced a, a cloud service very soon after we started the company, um, and actually we've uh, we were fortunate to partner with them at a at a very early stage, even before we had any full time employees, um, and that you know that has been tremendously useful. But there were a number of these things that were happening around the same time. You know, it started to become clearer that there was a path possibly to scalable quantum computing. Uh, and even though it may be a long path, there was now much more effort being focused on achieving it. That makes total sense. I want to get right into sort of the technical aspect because I I find it fascinating. And I'm I'm going to quote from uh, Dr. C. Hui Tan, your chief science officer, from a terrific YouTube video. And I encourage our listeners to check it out, do a search for it on YouTube. She's describing your solution. She says, you take the source code, run it through a compiler, it recognizes where there can be speedups, usually around loops, then breaks large loops apart into simpler elements, then classifies and replaces them with more efficient quantum procedures. So can you share more detail about how this works? Um, yeah, this is only part of the system we've been building. Um, okay. Essentially, we've been building a system to bridge all the way from user intent uh, to implemented quantum application. Mm. Um, and what I mean by user intent, that's kind of hard to quantify. Yeah. But for us, the way we capture it is we say to our user, basically, give us source code written in a classical language that has no references to anything quantum mechanical. Um, give us that source code. And what we're going to do is automatically construct a quantum algorithm from that that does the same thing as your source code but does it more efficiently, taking advantage of quantum techniques. So what C was talking about at that point in the video is how we construct a quantum algorithm from classical source code. So this might be code written in a language like MATLAB or in uh, Octave, or it could be in Python or something else. We focused on a subset of MATLAB and Octave uh, initially. Uh, and so that's if you see any of our demos, that's what it's running on. Um, but the techniques we've developed work for pretty much any language. Um, and basically what it is, is that there's three different, uh, there's three different things that cause your code to be slow. One of them is that you have loops. So you're reusing the bit of code within the loop again and again and again, or you have a recursive function call. So that's a function in the code that calls another function or itself and it telescopes yeah. out. So the same bit of code is again being used again and again and again and again. Uh, and the third way is that you just have inbuilt functions uh, or operations that are expensive. So for example, in a language like MATLAB or Octave, you might multiply two matrices together. And that's an inherently expensive operation, even though it maybe only takes one line of code to express. Um, it scales it scales badly with the size of the matrices. It, you know, you can tackle each of these three sources 
of complexity um, in different ways. So for loops, what we do is we try to break apart loops to make them into smaller loops, uh, sequences of smaller loops. So right. we try to break them apart, uh, break them apart, break them apart until we get down to really basic elements that we then classify. So, you know, we get to, to the point of being very small loops, although lots of small loops, and we recognize what each of those does. Similarly, you know, we can do the same kind of thing for recursive function calls. We can try to break apart those functions into simpler and simpler functions and then classify those. Say there's only a certain number of different kinds of these functions that can possibly occur. Uh, and we recognize which ones, you know, we're presented with and then replace. So replace with a more efficient technique for achieving the same outcome. And this has the effect of transforming your code, getting you to a quantum algorithm that has better performance, but performs exactly like your code. It does wow. exactly the same thing, has the same side effects. The uh, functions that are just expensive, those you can just straight up replace with quantum algorithms themselves or with quantum data types um, that have more efficient, you know, have better trade-offs in terms of efficiency uh, compared to any possible classical data representation. And that, that gets you to a quantum algorithm. Sounds like a brilliant solution. I want to talk uh, quantum internet for a moment, maybe go back in time. So sure. uh, I read that in 2008, you invented the first universal blind quantum computing protocol, along with Dr. Anne Broadbent and Dr. Elham Kashefi, uh, which allowed secure delegation of quantum computation in the cloud. Since then, the protocols emerged as an important use case for development of the quantum internet and was incorporated in the America's blueprint for the quantum internet, which was announced, I guess, at the University of Chicago year ago, July. Can you tell me more about how that protocol is being applied today? And I'd love to get your take on sort of the differing approaches being explored for quantum internet based on what you've invented. Sure. Um, I mean, I should first of all say that both Anne and Elham were instrumental in that. I wouldn't, I okay. wouldn't put it on me. Um, okay. You know, what I would say is that there had previously been a couple of papers that had thought about some kind of delegated computation and uh, ideas of security around it. In particular, there was a, a, an early paper on secure assisted computation from Andrew Childs and a, a couple of subsequent papers. But what we had was basically the first universal protocol to take any quantum computation and encode it in a secure way such that the, um, such that the device executing the program could not tell what it was. It couldn't tell anything about the program at all, other oh. than a bound on the amount of gates used, essentially the runtime, and the amount of qubits used, so the memory. And that's that's unavoidable. You can't possibly encode a computation uh, in such a way that it hides those, because ultimately the person running the computation, uh, you know, running the server, they know how much memory it has. They know how long it ran for. So there's some limit to what you can hide. But within those bounds, you can hide anything. So since then, there have been a lot of variant protocols that have yeah. come out. Um, there's yeah. different approaches to blind quantum computation that have been explored. We, When we came up with this protocol, um, I think the paper came out uh, on the archive in 2008 and then in Fox in, in 2009. A couple of years later, we were able to work with uh, Philip Walter's group and Anton Zeilinger in the University of Vienna to demonstrate this. 
So they were they were able to implement the uh, the blind quantum computing protocol um, in in a quantum optics experiment in the lab. Um, now I said uh, I said Philip and Anton. I should also give full credit to uh, Stephanie Vars, who actually did all the experiments. Um, so actually, I should have said her name first. <laughs> okay. Um, so we know this works. You know, yeah. we've been able to demonstrate kind of four qubit, uh, four qubit calculations encoded in this kind of secure way where nothing can be done to distinguish uh, one computation from another. Now, you could say, is this useful at all? Um, and really, yeah, I would argue well, that it is, that it's an important application. So, yeah. you know, if you look at the way things have developed, if you were to read our original paper, uh, in the abstract, it says, or in the first paragraph, something like that, there's some words to the effect of, in the future, there will probably be quantum computers, and they probably won't be on-premises. They'll probably be in the cloud, because there's lots of infrastructure around them, and it will be hard to do. And at the time, that was very speculative. But of course, you know, since the first quantum cloud experiments, uh, the University of Bristol, the uh, IBM, uh, quantum experience and so on, um, it's become increasingly clear that this is true, that this is how quantum computing services are likely to be offered to the majority of customers for the foreseeable future. Yeah, um, It's going to take some time before we have on-premises quantum computing. And that opens up some problems. You run into problems with uh, proprietary data. You run into problems with data crossing borders. And you run into the problem of, you know, what if you just don't trust the operator of the quantum computer? I mean, maybe they're a competitor. So, you know, for these types of situations, blind quantum computing seems to present a very clear path to avoiding some of the worst barriers to adoption of quantum computing once the technology is there. Um, There's some downsides to this. Uh, Generally, the protocol we came up with relied on quantum communication. So you need to be able to send a quantum state to the remote quantum computer. And in subsequent protocols, that's been refined to also be able to deal with the case where you get a a state back from the computer instead, Um, which means you can have a very simple device, but it's still a somewhat quantum device. And it still needs to be able to transmit quantum information between your location and the server. And that's that's still tricky. It's easier with optical technologies than it is, for example, with superconducting qubits. So there's there's still some path to go to overcome those barriers. There was kind of a breakthrough on this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, Ermila Mahadev came up with a, a protocol for doing um, blind and verifiable quantum computing with uh, purely classical communication. So no quantum states required. Hmm. Um, the problem with that, though, is that it requires at very large quantum systems. You need to be able to do lattice-based cryptography in them. And that means you're talking about probably millions or more qubits before you're able to actually do it in any kind of a secure way. Right. Um, for us, the way we think about it uh, as a company, we think it's likely to be quantum communication that gets us there, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, even though you have you have techniques like this, this protocol developed by Mandov that, uh, that can potentially eliminate the need for quantum communication further down the line. 
Yeah. So I want to continue on the topic, Joe, because I read recently there's a press release that announced that Horizon is going to be a node on the National Quantum Safe Network announced by the National Research Foundation in Singapore and the National University of Singapore. They said that Horizon's committed to supporting research and experimentation over the network that could build the foundations for a future quantum internet. Just wondering how you're going to contribute to this initiative based on the great work you did back in 2008 and have been doing. Sure. So, I, I mean, if you look at the research my group had been doing in academia for for a, a large number of years, essentially since uh, since then, um, a significant portion of the work we did uh, revolved around secure computing and different possible quantum techniques that could be used, uh, different kinds of functionalities that could be enabled uh, by quantum communication, by quantum computation. Um, that aren't possible in the classical world. Right. Uh, and so this has been something that we've been continuously working on and we've seen refinements. We've developed increasingly sophisticated blind computation protocols, but we've also developed protocols for, for things like noisy or approximate one-time programs, which is software that you can only run uh, a fixed number of times or a limited number of times before it degrades. Um, we know you can't do this perfectly, uh, but quantum mechanics gives you some advantage. So we've spent a lot of time developing these different kinds of protocols. And for us as a business, when we think about the barriers to quantum computation becoming an important technology for industry, one of those barriers is, of course, the hardware. If you don't have the hardware, you're nowhere. But then the other is, how do you interface with that hardware? Uh, how do you... How do you construct the quantum algorithm to run? You know, how do you program the hardware? But also just how do you make use of it in general? Because as I mentioned, there are these problems that you run into. If you're relying on cloud-based systems, there are lots of questions around privacy, um, around the data security, um, around, you know, even around the regulatory environment, uh, you know, data crossing borders, different things like this, uh, where it's not, necessarily practical to run unencrypted computation on devices that maybe are operated by organizations that you don't have a strong relationship with, that you don't necessarily place a lot of trust in. So as we see it, if we want to really kind of own this area of, of writing applications and then deploying applications, it's important to also solve this deployment problem to give users a way to be able to make use of cloud-based quantum systems as if they were on-prem, to, to really remove some of these barriers. And so if we're thinking longer term about the trajectory of our business, it's not just about building the best compiler, it's also about alleviating these issues. And for that, blind quantum computing is going to be an incredibly important part of the strategy. And that being the case, it made a lot of sense for us to participate in the National Quantum Safe Network. Um, you know, essentially as part of it, there are quantum communications channels over fiber uh, in Singapore. And this gives a, a perfect test bed for demonstrating some of these building blocks for secure computation. Um, and so that's, you know, that's part of our, uh, that's part of what we were signing up to in our MOU with, uh, with the National University of Singapore and the Quantum Engineering Program. Yeah, I look forward to, to following that, seeing, watching that evolve. It says your solution is hardware agnostic. I want to get into 
the Qubit conversation a little bit. Um, but it also calls out the fact you have a close partnership with Rigetti. Uh, you've working with them since, say, 2018. Uh, the implication is, right, your solution runs on quantum computers based on superconducting qubits. But are there other qubit arrays where your solution will work, or photonics, trapped ions, cold atoms, other? So, so the way we've been building the system, um, I've talked about using it from the perspective of writing classical code and compiling all the way down. Um, yeah. That will actually be a, a kind of later feature at, to launch. It, there will be some lower level tools that come out first. But basically, in terms of the user experience, you're able to interact with the system at different levels of abstraction. So if you are, um, if you are very expert in quantum computing um, and you want to write your own quantum algorithms, then you can write using a programming language we've developed that is a quantum programming language. So you can specify that you want to do a, a Hadamard gate or a quantum Fourier transform or whatever you're going to do. Um, but you can also incorporate classical code if you're writing subroutines. So we have the ability to compile C, for example, to highly efficient quantum circuits. Um, so we've been building those tools and we compile down. So whether we go from classical code or whether we go from quantum code, we're compiling down to a concrete quantum circuit or not necessarily a quantum circuit. It may be, it may be something more than a circuit. So basically a combination of control flow for the classical hardware together with what are effectively fragments of a quantum circuit. Um, and you need that if you want to be able to implement arbitrary computation, if you want a language that's Turing complete. Once we have that, once we get to that level, we need to be able to compile it to hardware to run, to, you know, to actually run on physical hardware. And right. there's different instruction sets. There's different connectivity. There's all sorts of different constraints on the hardware. And the hardware is very imperfect at present. Yeah. So in terms of our development, we've taken the approach of developing in a way where our language design, our compiler is designed to work with any hardware so that the instruction set, the connectivity of the device, the characterization of the device, all of these are provided essentially in structured text files, which allows the compiler to make decisions. So you're specifying the instructions you use in what is essentially the most general way you possibly could uh, as a series of POVM elements. So this is the most general kind of quantum measurement or, or, as, a, or as a set of Krauss operators, which is the most general kind of non-measurement that you get in quantum mechanics. So our instruction sets are specified in this way. Uh, and we've been developing the tools to be able to automatically synthesize from one instruction set to another, meaning that we can write code in one instruction set and translate to another. Um, we've built up the algorithms to be able to map to any connectivity construct. Sorry, we've built up the algorithms to be able to map to any connectivity graph that we may have with any different quality of gates. Uh, taken into account so that we avoid the worst gates and use the best gates and so on. Um, and that works, that works well. Uh, we've done this already, compiled down an algorithm that involved uh, both quantum code uh, as well as classical subroutines written in C a 
compiled it all the way down and run it for the first time. It was run on an IONQ system, actually. So it wasn't a superconducting system at all that, that oh. this first ran on. So we've been building up these techniques to basically be able to deal with essentially any kind of hardware. So we're not tied to a particular gate set. We're not tied to, uh, you know, to CNOTs. You know, if you have fusion operations or something instead, we should, you know, we can deal with pretty much anything you can imagine. We're not restricted to qubits. Um, so there's a, you know, we've tried to build a very, very general system. And along with that, to develop the algorithms for very efficiently characterizing hardware to understand its imperfections so that we can mitigate those as much as possible. Now, we can't get rid of noise, but we can certainly reduce it. Wow, terrific. Thank you for describing that. Let's shift gears and kind of uh, step away and get, I want to give you a chance to look into the crystal ball, talk about the horizon roadmap and the vision. Worth noting that in June 2020, you received a $3.23 million funding round led by Sequoia Capital India. Congratulations. I wanted to get your take on how this is going to help you expand the company and you know where you see Horizon in three to five years, where this company will be going. Sure. Um, so I think I've said a little bit about uh, you know about what the trajectory looks like for us. You know, our main focus is on building uh, building our compiler tool chain at present, um, but will extend into secure deployment as well. So that's why we're taking the first steps in terms of uh, putting in place partnerships on blind computation, putting, you know, starting to do the internal development, starting to talk to hardware companies and so on to, to start putting in, start putting us on that path to yeah. being able to achieve that. But that's a, that's a, that's a further goal. It requires you know, it requires changes in hardware. It requires lots of things that will be complex and that will take a long time to actually actually iron out. But that's the trajectory for us. It, it's to get to a point where we are able to allow users to program in purely classical code and get a quantum advantage running on hardware and to deploy that securely. Now, the hardware is not there yet to see a real quantum advantage. It's unlikely that there are systems that show a real advantage on today's problems. At least it hasn't been demonstrated yet. Um, so there's still some way to go. And of course, you know, a first demonstration of quantum advantage for a real world problem will be one of the major milestones for our field in, you know, in the next couple of years, or at least that that's the hope really for us. That's the key step. Makes sense. Last question, a topic near and dear to my heart, which is around workforce, right? So I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like Horizon Quantum and finding talent. Like, how do you go about recruiting for your company? Do you have affiliations with the universities there in Singapore or uh, global network? And, and also your take on specific disciplines that may be harder to find talent in than others? Everyone says that talent is a bottleneck. And that's certainly true. The number of people who are skilled in quantum algorithms is small. And for us, we concentrate on structured quantum algorithms, you know, more like Shor's algorithm, uh, rather than the NISC algorithms that you hear quite a lot about today. Um, and the reality is that the number of people with expertise in constructing those is small. In terms of hiring, that's 
that's definitely a bottleneck for everyone. Fortunately, we're in a reasonably good position. We're coming out of the academic community, so we've had long careers in that field. Um, so we're we're pretty well networked. It's also the case that we've had, you know, we've had our share of research successes, um, and I would like to think that that means that if a student goes and talks to their supervisor about whether they should take a job with Horizon or not. Um, they're going to know at least, they're going to have the confidence that it's not going to damage their career. Um, that actually we're doing interesting things, that yeah. we have good track records, and that it's good, you know, that it's a good team to be on. Yeah. Um, so we've been fortunate in that respect. We haven't uh, we haven't found ourselves uh, really at a at a lack of talent, but for sure it's going to be a constraint for everyone going forward. Talked a little bit about getting into quantum computing and people's different paths. Yeah. Um, what I would say is that the kinds of people we need to hire, some of them are experts in quantum computing, and they'll have done PhDs in quantum computing, they'll have done postdocs, they may already have faculty positions. But they're not the only kind of people we need. You know, there are plenty of other roles that companies like ours need to fill. Yeah. Um, and those, are, you know, some of those are very technical roles. Uh, for us, it, it might be compiler engineering. Um, it might be on the product side. And, and in fact, you know, one of the, one of my best decisions, I think, um, was to hire our current uh, product manager, Amanda Chu. Um, so she joined us from Microsoft. Uh, she'd been a senior program manager there uh, working on development tools. Uh, and that's, that's exactly the right background for us, uh, for a product manager. You know, we're building software development tools, having a product manager with deep expertise, with deep experience, previously building widely used software development tools. You know, that's a really, uh, that's a really important aspect of it. Yeah. And, terrific. Yeah. You know, great. they don't need to come with a quantum PhD. Right, that's not the that's not the yep. skill set that we need from. Yeah, um, but of course there is scope within job roles in quantum computing to become familiar, to become expert in the technology. So great insight, thank you, Joe. We've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Very enlightening, and um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. I know it's early in the morning for you, so we're very grateful for you sharing your insight and expertise with us. Sure, no problem. Thank you for the invitation. So I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'm going to point them to your website, right? Horizonquantum.com. As I mentioned, there's some great videos on YouTube that uh, you guys post to Twitter as well. And uh, thank you again. Thanks, Joe, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Joe. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.